This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. I received a piece of work from the desk of Philip Saunders, who's the co-head of Global Multi-Asset Growth, and it is entitled Looking Through the U.S. Election. Philip is with me now. Philip, it's difficult not to focus on the U.S. election because of all sorts of things happening almost every day now, but we have to do that. And you say in that vein, we believe the dynamics of the unfolding recovery, together with ongoing monetary and fiscal policy support, are far more important considerations than the US election, although I would argue that the three are interlinked. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously, there's been an inordinate uh, amount of focus on the US presidential elections. And the turnout was extraordinary. And because you have this sort of, you know, controversial figure in the form of President Trump, And it's true that uh, if the Democrats do manage to get control of the Senate, they will basically have control of both houses and obviously the presidency. And that will mean that they will be able to pursue a sort of more of the policies in their manifesto, although that won't be entirely easy. But actually, you know, these shifts in policy, which take time to come through and quite often are watered down considerably, um, I think, you know, over the next 12 months or so are going to be completely sort of secondary or tertiary to the other major drivers that are at work, which is an extraordinary stimulative um, approach in terms of sort of monetary policy, QE, uh, and also fiscal policy across the world. And the uh, the, the prospect of basically the sort of escaping from the embrace of COVID to a large degree, i.e. returning to a sort of much more normal setup. Yes. Uh, so those are the things that really have been driving markets. And the US presidential election slowed things up because people typically de-risk before these kind of events, even though that's often a mistake. And as soon as basically we knew pretty much what the result was going to be, despite legal action on the part of Trump, etc., Markets took off and you you saw a a really decisive inflection point of a shift from the kind of assets that had done well, you know, in the first stage of the market recovery. uh, And you saw a very clear baton pass to the more cyclical sectors, which had lagged significantly up until that point. Yes. And the second point you make, which is one that uh, really caught my eye, as the recovery gains traction, you say we can continue to expect bonds to sell off as longer term yields rise. Now, this is terribly important to me because I was speaking to an American analyst yesterday who said to me, if it goes, if the US 10-year goes, for example, above 1%, let's, let's make it a nice round number, above 1%, then there's going to be an awful lot of margin calls. He was quite dramatic about it. But is there a, an implication if bond yields do start to rise, not only for bond investors, but also for other asset class investors? Well, I think that, I mean, clearly the short end of bond market have been pretty much pinned down by central banks uh, and you know the US obviously being the most important one and so this means that you know prices further along the yield curve i.e. 10 years 10 20 30 year maturity type bonds that's you know where things are not pinned down and where basically the normal impact of a recovery situation 
uh, tends to actually sort of result in steeper yield curves as confidence grows in the likelihood of a recovery. Um, and so therefore, you know, that's essentially what has been happening more recently. Bond yields have been rising, uh, but US 10 years are below 1%. I mean, round numbers are round numbers, and I think people make rather too much of that. Yes. Um, and so therefore, progressively, uh, the ten, you know, if we, if we see normalization occurring, and in fact, it's happening more quickly than you might imagine from all of this sort of, I mean, the, the narrative in the media is all about spikes and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of that is the result of more testing, um, uh, and the amount of hospitalizations basically is, is is not behaving in anything like the same way as occurred in during the original outbreak back in back in the spring. Uh, but I think that you know, as you get basically um, more traction behind uh, a recovery, a return to sort of the normal levels of economic activity, uh, then. Uh, th- th- then you would naturally expect um, the yield curves to steepen, uh, you know, as uh, as market participants, uh, uh, you know, anticipated higher rates of inflation on the one hand, um, uh, or return of inflation, uh, and also eventually um, um, higher short-term interest rates. Okay, you say the following as well. We are at a point in the cycle that should continue to favour equities over other growth assets. Are you talking about an economic cycle, a political cycle, a market cycle? Just be clear on that one, if you would. So I think that, um, you know, what has occurred in credit markets, for example, you know, is that you've seen a phenomenal rebound and credit spreads having blown out to sort of particularly wide levels during the during March, um, on fears of a liquidity crunch turning into a credit crunch um, and lots of defaults and so forth, you know, you've actually seen those fears sort of reduce and you've seen credit spreads uh, go back to pre-COVID levels when they were pretty tight, okay? So, so it, you know, ultimately, if you've got bond yields rising, uh, then, um, th- then credit spreads uh, with tight credit spreads. Then you know it becomes increasingly difficult to generate returns from being long, high yield credit, for example. And so, um, and that's a typical pattern because normally high yield rallies first, um, and uh, and then real assets. You know, obviously equities basically generate earnings and so forth, um, whereas you know bond yields can only go down so far, yes. so much. Um, then, then I think the attention switches to you know the, the earnings recovery, um, and um, and equities basically have more headroom to continue to uh, to recover. Whereas obviously credit markets uh, are likely to sort of struggle a bit. You might clip the coupon. Uh, your risks are fairly asymmetric because basically, you know, if bond yields rise faster than we anticipate, uh, then then that's going to lead to negative returns. Speaking of high yield, which you were a minute or so ago, you talk about emerging market currencies and assets. Obviously, that is right at the high yield end of the curve. And you say a softer dollar should help to drive emerging market currencies and assets. And you say this is predicated on a continued decline in real US interest rates as the Fed keeps rates locked down and inflation rebounds or potentially rebounds anyway. So you, you like the emerging market story just to conclude this. Yes, I mean, I think obviously the emerging markets have rallied to some degree and the stronger sort of Asian markets, stronger in fundamental terms, you know, less need for international sort of capital flows, 
you know, have uh, have done pretty well, the currencies and, and the bond markets. And the, the less credit worthy countries have obviously lagged uh, because, you know, generally speaking, investors have, you know, been slow to accept uh, that the uh, recovery really has sustainability in legs. Yes. So you've seen obviously defensive assets like gold um, and um, and actually the big U.S. tech franchises do well. Uh, but the sort of market, you know, there, there's been a lack of breadth up until this point, which indicates the fact that people basically don't yet believe uh, that the recovery is sustainable and real. Now we're sort of shifting a gear and we're moving into a phase whereby there is greater growing acceptance of recovery. And if that being the case, then, you know, basically capital will flow towards basically, you know, riskier levels, riskier areas. So, for example, in the emerging market spectrum, yes, the Turkish lira has been pretty horrible. The Turkish assets have really struggled because of government policy and their particular president who makes Trump look somewhat normal on, on occasions. So something like that requires basically a generally much more sort of constructive uh, international environment in order to actually uh, sort of recover meaningfully. So that hasn't happened as yet, but it could happen. And then obviously the South African rand, you know, is another example of a a, a currency that needs um, a softer dollar uh, and, and, and greater risk appetite on the part of international investors, then you would expect basically an asset like that to uh, be in a better position, you know, if we do see a softer dollar and we see a continuing recovery. Suddenly, I'm rather optimistic about 2021. Cautiously so. Cautiously optimistic, I think, is the phrase that comes out of our discussion. Philip, thank you so much for your time. That's Philip Saunders, co-head of Global Multi-Asset Growth at 91 in London.